If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Thank you for listening to the Empire podcast. Uh, this particular episode is going to be a little bit gruesome. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. So advice from friends, because William and I are friends of yours. We get a bit carried away. So uh, don't listen to this with children. And welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Derimple. Now, in the last episode, the superstar who is otherwise known as Mark David Bear was talking about Suleiman the Magnificent and his failed Ottoman siege of Vienna in 1529. And you know, a lot of historians, William, say this is the, the high watermark of the Ottoman Empire before it stabilised borders with, with Christian Europe in the decades which followed. And then it started declining and retreating and going back to its uh, Anatolian kernel from whence it came. But, 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 we don't say that, do we, William? We do not say that. We well, say something else, don't we? We? <laughs> <laughs> we don't say that because we like to celebrate what we're going to celebrate on this episode, which is the Battle of Lepanto, which I first saw visiting Venice. There's a fantastic mural of it right across the roof and the walls of the Doge's Palace, uh, where the whole, every sort of episode of the entire battle is, is replayed by, I think, Veronese or one of those uh, great sort of Venetian painters. And this battle in 1571 is arguably the greatest sea battle ever fought in the Mediterranean. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it is. And I don't take issue with that, but I do take issue with Celebrate? Are we toasting marshmallows on the burning decks? <laughs> I mean, it's pretty gruesome stuff, mate. Well, the Venetians, the Venetians certainly did. Right. And what we forget is that, you know, to us, the Ottomans, a far distant history. It's exciting. It's interesting. It's exotic. But it isn't a threat to us personally. For mm. the Venetians, it actually was. Because yeah. if you think where Venice is, on the corner of the Adriatic, the Ottomans coming very close to that. 
by the 1570s. And they've already put a foothold in Otranto. They've captured a port for just one year, but they've captured a port in southern Italy. And if you're a Venetian, you can see this this force coming towards you, getting close to you, until they're now in what's now Croatia. So yeah. for the Venetians, this really was a life and death It's issue. an existential threat. My, my, my favorite thing about what they do <laughs> in response, <laughs> and we're going to talk about today, is that they form something that sounds like a, a Marvel movie franchise, <laughs> which is the development of the Holy League. Um, <laughs> I, Marvel, Marvel doesn't go for the holy bit often, but yeah. No, no, no. It definitely has a league of super superheroes. The Holies yeah. Assemble. I mean, you yeah. could say that. This is the cry from the Pope. The Holies Assemble, so the Holy League. So you're right. I mean, because, you know, we have Trafalgar. We talk about Trafalgar. We have big monuments to Trafalgar. It stopped the advance of Napoleon. Battle of Britain stopped Hitler. These are enormous moments in our history. Lepanto is that. Exactly. And, and if you are not only a Venetian, but if you are anyone on, on that end of continental Europe, this is, the, this is arguably the turning point. But we'll, we'll come to that actually at the mm. end, because we have here uh, one of the great experts on the battle, my great friend and uh, the wonderful historian Barnaby Rogerson, author of The Last Crusaders, The Hundred Year Battle for the center of the world. And Barnaby, I think, also thinks that Lepanto is the crucial battle, and it's not the siege of Vienna. Hello, hello, Barnaby. Hello, welcome, welcome to Empire. Can I just say it? It feels as if somebody's carbon copied William and just slapped him on my screen. You can't see you people out there in Podland, but it's like I'm seeing double and someone's hit me on the head um, because you do. Has anyone pointed this out before? Has anyone said anything? Has anyone mentioned this before, Barnaby? We have some friends in common, and for 30 years, there's a tremendous reluctance to get William and Barnaby around the same table, unless there's just too much volume. <laughs> All right, okay, so you look like him, and you're as loud as him. Oh, this is fun. I'm very <laughs> delighted by this. <laughs> Luckily, he, he's better dressed and far more stylish. So before we get into Lepanto, can we get into a little bit of um, prying? I mean, it is prying. Where did you meet? What's he really like? <laughs> How come you're friends? The thing we love... It's other people's food, wine, talk, <laughs> monuments. And we both have got brothers who we adore, but are sort of competitive friends in our lives. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the big difference between Barabibi is that his father was a sailor. And and therefore, he was brought up on naval history in a way that I wasn't, which is, I think, possibly uh, one reason why you gravitated to this uh, extraordinary subject. Okay, and do you and do you also are you are you with us or against us when we say <laughs> the siege of Vienna is not the crucial moment that people bang on about, and that it's actually Lepanto? Very, very much not, and almost an insult to all your listeners who are not obsessed about Western European situation is the sort of global reach of the Ottoman Empire, and their much greater concern with the real enemy for them culturally and everything else, which was the Persian Shiite Empire, and so it's a bit of a sort of Western obsession to constantly go on about Vienna. And it was important, very important if you're Austrian, and even more important if you're Habsburg, but just one of the sort of 90 dials of which the Ottoman Empire was interested in. That's a very important point. We from the West always think of the Ottoman advance to the West as being their main concern, as if they're uh, focused entirely on us. In actual fact, their big rivalry is with Persia. Mm. And the Safavid ki uh, kings of Persia, at this point, building Isfahan, commissioning some of the most beautiful manuscripts in the world, the Shahnameh of Shah being the, the great masterpiece. This is all going on. And, and, and this is the main focus. And in a sense, what's happening in Vienna and Lepanto is in many ways a sideshow. I mean, they're, they're, uh, we're, we're going to talk about 
this in the next podcast a lot when we talk about the Levant Company, but actually Britain doesn't register on the dial at all. I mean, there, there are pleas to the Ottomans. Could you send us an ambassador? We'd like an ambassador. We want to be friends. Will you send us an ambassador? We'd really make an ambassador feel really cosy and they just never bother. They don't care. This is why I love this period. We are absolutely, you know, with tidal rocks, so obscure, so unimportant. And, you know, we can possibly observe this whole thing in a way that, as William said earlier, Venetian can't. They, I mean, they refer to Queen Elizabeth. I think one, one thing I've seen is uh, Queen Isabella of the Little Island. <laughs> they don't even get her name right. You can see you can see them sort of waving their hands in the background. There is a, a slight, rather wonderful secret uh, arrangement between Morocco and England changing, you know, the English are very keen on getting hold of their gunpowder supplies, which they get from Morocco. And Ooh. there's a mad scheme that English ships are going to take a Moroccan army over to South America and conquer uh, the Spanish Empire there. But it's definitely, you know, eight, eight from the back of the row, waving mad, trying to be important. And the, the king of Morocco actually suggests Queen Elizabeth at one point that uh, he helps her colonise Virginia. Because he says that my people will be better suited to the climate than your people who are used to the snow, the cold and the rain. What? It's one of the most extraordinary moments in history. The Moroccans offer to help Queen Elizabeth colonize North America. Just imagine if that offer had been accepted. We'd have a Moroccan colony now in Virginia. But, but the geopolitics has shifted. I mean, the tectonic plates have shifted so, so much. Can I read you something just before we get into Because <laughs> I think it's really nice to understand the, the background of the, the two countries and the, sort of the, the measure of these you know the the west and whatever you want i mean what you want the levant what do we what do we call the ottoman empire you know i mean they were it's just so not in kilter because elizabeth the first when she's she's quite good friends with murad the third or she wants to be she writes him a letter where she just blatantly lies <laughs> it's just so marvelous she lies about how important she is so um this is how she introduces herself elizabeth by the grace of the most mighty god the only creator of heaven and earth of england france and Ireland Queen. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. I mean, England, yes. France, definitely not. Ireland, hmm. Um, you know, it's just such a patent lie. And they don't, I mean, she feels that she can write this, I suppose, because they don't really check up on her homework. It's not, they're not important enough to check. And my, my favourite fun fact on that theme is that in, I mean, it's a little bit beyond our period. In 1620, there were more captives white slaves in North Africa than were um, British settlers in the whole of North America. Wow. Really? That's shocking. So that, that, that gives you a sort of scale of how important we were, really, you know, providing slaves rather than the other way around. We're going to be going period. into this uh, very much in our Levant Company episode in the next thing. But yes, there were Ottoman slaving raids in Cornwall. Oh, Ottoman yes. slavers going inland and minehead and places like this, taking slaves and carrying them back to Algiers. Mm. Anyway, William, get us back on track because I this is like yes. one of those dinner parties with <laughs> two of you. We're never going to stick to the point ever. Okay. <laughs> Why are we here? So, Barnaby, in the lead up to Lepanto, let's start with Suleiman the Magnificent's failed siege of Malta, the end of his reign. He's he's conquered the whole of the of, of Egypt, of Iraq the beginning of the North African littoral, he's an extraordinary success. But when he sends his boats against the Knights Hospitallers in Malta, it's one of his few failures. Tell us about that and, and, and what happens there. It is a failure and it's a famous a failure, but it's also an incredibly well-planned organisation. It hit the island exactly where it meant to. 
There were 190 uh, Armada fleet taking the army over. There were 90 galleys protecting it. They unloaded ordnance for that siege. They had all the equipment ready. It was also quite bold when you look at the map. Sicily, as we all know, is just above Malta. So, and that was um, ruled by Philip of Spain, a part of the Kingdom of Naples. So you were really going deep into enemy territory and were trying to take the knights out. And almost certainly, even if he destroyed Malta, one wonders if he'd been able to hold it. So it's, you know, it's, it's the most stirring record. And, and part of my childhood, I grew up as a tiny little baby in Malta. And Gozo, Malta was full of stories of Dragu and Barbarossa, even before the siege. It's very much on the front line with this extraordinary element, of course, of the Maltese speaking Arabic. And so when you go to a Catholic church in Malta, as we did, you heard, you know, the mass in Arabic and you had, the, you had this really strong frontline feel. The other thing, of course, is Solomon was used to sieges. His father uh, had tried to take out Rhodes, failed, but then he comes back and takes it early on in his reign. Belgrade was hit famously by two different um, sultans, Murad and um, his father, Mehmed the Conqueror, before Solomon finally takes it. So Ottomans were, were very used to a progressive warfare. They were used to trundling out the army on each occasion. So although we might celebrate, oh, you didn't win Malta, that was quite business for usual for the Ottoman Empire. They would, you know, we've done that, we've investigated that, we'll, we'll see if we want that. Or they actually turned their campaign, and the next time they had opportunity, to take out the other base, which was the uh, Spanish-Italian uh, base at La Goleta, which, which holds the Tunisian uh, bay and that they took out very quickly. We can talk about that later. Where's that, on, on the mainland? In... So th that's on the mainland of North Africa. It's, it's an enormous fortress, almost like the Verdun of the 16th century, constantly changing hands and with Tunis. And to a certain extent, the, the emperors decide, well, that would be something we can take and hold. And Malta was always going to be something on the, on the edge of what we can achieve. The sultans could do everything, as we, as we know, on their campaigns, but they're aware that running a maritime siege, which they'd done in Cyprus, they'd done in Rhodes, took a lot of planning. I mean, probably about four years. So whenever a siege is happening, both sides know it's going to happen. And in every occasion, the walls are re-fortified. Re you know, the Knights of Sir John knew where the Ottomans were coming. Everybody knew what was happening. So there's no element of surprise. And there's a little bit, it wasn't their theme. They really liked a land army and they love that tension in spring when the mm. world was waiting. Was the standard going to be planted on the Asian shore? Was it going to be in Romelia? The, the army was highly mobile, it could move quickly. But taking on a Christian island, gosh, that was a slog. That was four years of logistics. Do you know, I read, I read somewhere that, yeah, as you say, sieges, you know, they, they, they weren't done by stealth. You could see them come, you could hear the drums, you could smell the burning torches. That often, actually, the fortifications did more damage to heritage sites and old ruins than the siege itself or the invaders themselves. Absolutely true. I mean, I partly got into this as a guidebook writer. So time and time again, you'd come to places like Mardia or Nicosia, and you'd find out the medieval city had not been destroyed by the Ottomans, it seemed to have been destroyed by a quick um, glacis artillery fortress run up in 1560. And, you know, the process of the artillery war is absolutely fascinating because it's also war by finance. The Duke of Guise writes a letter to the Pope saying, if you're going to take out even a moderate fortress, you need 24 large siege artillery. You need um, 10,000 shot. You need 100,000 pounds of gunpowder. These are financial dispositions that require, you know, backing, organisation. Money, honey. <laughs> Money, honey. Just as we saw 
the, the, in the last episode, at this point, the Ottomans are not worried about money. They've, they've seized vast territories. They're an incredibly rich power. Now, we left the last episode with the death of Suleiman the Magnificent. Tell us about the man who succeeds him, his son, Selim II. Selim II, I'm rather fond of because he called a sot. He was fond of poetry, mysticism, eating, drinking. William would have got on with him very well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Barnaby, you, you might have got on with him too. To be <laughs> he loved guys. building. He had really good taste. Um, um, he was a good man. Unlike William he, and myself, he fell over on a marble floor and killed himself, you know, rather oh, unglamorously on, in the hammam, slipping, one imagines, after the, the third bottle. The tragedy, <laughs> he, he, he was the least good of all of the sons on offer. And we have the, the hidden side of your, of your previous story about Roxolana. Oh, yeah. She knew that terrible thing. You're not just fighting for your, for your life. You're fighting for your children's life. And so there's this sort of dark plot when she gets rid of Ibrahim Pasha, the best thing in the Divan Councils of the Empire ever, only after Solomon's revered uh, mother dies, Hafsa. And then things start crunching up as she gets rid of the rivals. And the, the rival she gets rid of is Prince Mustafa, much loved by the Janissaries, much loved by the people, brilliant young warrior. And when he's throttled um, by the death mutes of Solomon and Magnificent on a campaign, you feel something passionate dies in the heart of the empire. And mm. then it comes to the contest between Bayezid and Selim. And Bayezid was also the preferred candidate to Selim. So when Selim comes in, no one likes him. He's not sporty, a bit too clever. And he realises that, you know, when his father dies, there's a, there's a mutiny, he's got the money. Think The empire looks so strong on the outside, but one realises, very like the Roman Empire, the Janissaries are like the Praetorian Guard, and they want to be led by a soldier. They want to be led by someone who's going to offer them conquest, war, glamour, booty, the chance of sack and rape of a, of a fallen city. And Selim is not going to do that. But he does have a brilliant vizier, doesn't he? Sokolu Mehmet Pasha. He does have a brilliant vizier. And the succession of viziers, and we, we, we're talking in a way that this is the apogee of the empire. The, the viziers take the Ottoman Empire on for the next 150 years as a great institution. You know, um, Crete doesn't fall to the 17th century. And the, the advance in Russia, the, the, the empire continues as a great expansion force for another 150 years after Lepanto. But mm. there's a tragic, tragic moment in Ottoman history is that um, Solomon the Magnificent led 13 campaigns personally, risked himself at the head of his army. It was a defeat. It took out the Sultan as well, an extraordinary sort of gift for an army to be led by their own sovereign. And Selim never leads the palace. And to that extent, you know, the military zeal, the Ottoman Empire is a war machine. It's like a perfectly organized, slimline, imperial version of Sparta. It's there to fight. And they've suddenly lost their leader with Selim. Yeah, and, and you know, you've, you've got to do the FaceTime and the, the hand pressing if you are the Ottoman leader, particularly with the Janissaries. They have so much power. If you don't get in with them, they can kill you. <laughs> I mean, they are trained to kill. Um, the, the others say that Selim, you know, apart from being um, unsteady on his feet in bathrooms, uh, he, <laughs> he made a terrible error in, in his reign, which is to break the peace treaty that he had with the Venetians and attack their most important Mediterranean possession, that was Cyprus. Um, and that's 1570, isn't it? I mean, why did he do it? It's so unpopular. If you've got a code of honour, which the Ottomans do have, if you've got Janissaries who believe in that code of honour, was it popular with them? Did they like it? What do they think about that? 
it's always popular leading the army a conquest. Um, there was a tradition that you couldn't build a new royal mosque unless it's from booty. So there was an absolute sort of inner code, nothing written, but a sultan could only build another great monument from what he'd captured. And Selim wanted that, both the mystique of building another great mosque, which he did in the end. He built the greatest mosque of all time at Adirne from the booty of Cyprus. But he also, a bit like Claudius, Emperor Claudius, he wanted to have a conquest to, to make himself stand beside his fantastically overpowerful ancestors and to be part of that tradition. To be honest, there's too much sort of chatter about the importance of Cyprus. The Venetians never really loved Cyprus, as William's going to explain in the next incident. The real heart of everything they did was the Levant trade. They could have mm. given up their empire tomorrow. What they needed was the fleet, a couple of bases, and the Levant trade. I can't remember the exact figures, but there's roughly like 8 million coming from the Levant trade and sort of tens of thousands on their island territories. They paid terribly badly to the Cypriots. They oppressed the Orthodox Church. When the Turks landed in Cyprus, the Greeks rose in rebellion against the Venetians. It wasn't unpopular in the Levant. Uh, they were much hated. And the Venetians were pretty much hated everywhere in Europe because they were so rich and so powerful. It's a bit like being a Manhattan or London banker, you know, coming to Hampshire or anywhere. People don't <laughs> like very successful bankers all over the world. They're, they're loathed. And so taking out Cyprus was actually a pretty good idea. It rounded off the territory. Um, it, it controlled more of the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, there was a little bit of slipshod work about it. It had very briefly been an advanced Omeyyad province. And so there was a, a legal reason the land of Islam could be reconquered. Oh, so they, they, they had to get a legal underpinning? They did have. Oh, the, they the did? The Sultan okay. went to the Mufti and, and, the, and the, the head clerics and they said, you must break this. Now, we've done our research and we realise this is a land of Islam that's been lost to the Crusaders and it's your duty as our, as our leader to, to lead the conquest. And it's a great pity he didn't go on that fleet and lead the conquest because it was quite easy to achieve the fall of Cyprus, apart from these um, tremendously expensive and um, classic sieges against Nicosia and then Famagusta. Well, we're going we're to come to Nicosia in a second because it's so so interesting and gruesome and just so Game of thrones <laughs> But we'll, to do that in one second. But just, just with Cyprus, I mean, the people of Cyprus, they were never loved by the Venetians and they didn't love the Venetians either. Would they have welcomed Ottoman rule more? I mean, the Ottomans, we talked about this in, in past pods, that you know they would allow people to practice their religion as they saw fit. So would they have thought, actually, rather be, if we're going to be under someone's boot, rather be an Ottoman boot than you know the Venetians who've made everything that we are difficult? Oh, yes. Time and time again, we forget that because of our obsession about recent history. The Orthodox would always prefer Turban uh, to the Tiara. Going as a Catholic still to some Greek islands, sometimes the doors will be, will be closed to you. And certainly, not only do the Ottomans were welcomed by spontaneous, well, I'm spontaneous, I'm sure they helped organise the, the Greek revolts, but they also broke the old Venetian serfdom clauses and gave the Greek farmers freehold use of their lands. So it was actually a revolution. And we forget about that again and again, how appalling, without sounding like some doctrinaire communists, how appalling the Christian regimes were. The Hungarian nobility... The tripartite code is cited as one of the worst, most abusive bits of repressive legislation ever. A Hungarian peasant had the right to nothing, not even his clothes, his tools, his land. He was totally, the only thing he could sell was labour. And so time and time again, when the Ottoman Empire comes, they were liberators. And the third thing I really want to say is they weren't keen on converting. The Ottoman Empire lived from its minorities. The poll tax 
from all the Christians, from the Jews, was a major source of revenue. So all this sort of worry about the fall of Vienna doesn't really matter. Even if Vienna had fell, they'd have left them there as Christians, get some poll tax from them. Things would not really have changed. But but they did also take, they also took their boys. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've had this cringe before because my boys are exactly the age. You know, they are exactly between eight to, you know, what is it, 14. They could uh, you know, levy this blood tax and take little boys and turn them into janissaries, not to come home again. William and I just think, you know, seven or eight time they were packed off. It's no more than going to a boarding school oh, and being educated <laughs> to become a Mandarin elite, you know. It doesn't seem so odd for a certain minority. Oh, it explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and the Sopli right. Mehmet Pasha, you know, was, was from a, a minor dynasty of Serbian, Serbian gentry. And one wonders how often they weren't, it was almost like a competitive examination. Could I join, you know, this year's assembling? Because it wasn't just janissaries, officials, uh, gardeners, boatmen, the whole apparatus of the empire was run by these, I like to call them as young boy converts or, you know. And Sokolov Mehmet Pasha kept in touch with his Serbian family, didn't he? I mean, it wasn't like he, they broke and, you know, changed identity. And indeed, Sinan, the, the great architect who, who is also alive at this time, building these extraordinary monuments, beginning his career with the Suleimanie, carrying on building for someone we'll hear more about in this episode, Kilic Ali Pasha and his gorgeous mosque on the shores of the Bosphorus. These people keep in touch with their families, whether they're Armenian or Serbian, and, and send goodies. It's like a remittance economy. They send money off to the Balkans and to Armenia. I don't know what I see. I don't know what to think and, and feel about this. Maybe we should do a whole thing about the genocide because, on, on the one hand, we've talked about this before, and I did my little hand wringing mother thing, you know. Again. <laughs> but you know, on the one hand, I, I hear that we, you had people who were hiding their children away, and they went on the run just so that you know when this harvesting of young boys was was taking place. And on the other hand, I've also read that people would bribe officials, take my child, because, yes. you know, we, we could get a better life. What, what is true here? Both are probably true. You could imagine in different circumstances either being true or both. I think William's totally right. I think there was, you know, there was a draft when the war had gone badly and, you know, we need more cannon fodder. That must have been a time when you were worried about your boy going off. But at other times, it was an absolute career of opportunity, and we'll probably talk about him later, but one of my heroes is Uluch Ali, one of the Ottoman admirals at Lepanto. And he was taken as a 17-year-old, as a fully formed Calabrian. You know, what greater sort of cultural identity can you have than being Italian, Calabrian, Catholic, and a fisher boy? This is the other name for the guy I just talked about, Kilic Ali Pasha. They're, they're the same person, yeah. He converts, but probably you'll get a reader or immediately be able to reply. But I can't think of a single major Ottoman converter to Islam who went and joined the empire, who ever betrayed, who ever reverted back to being a Christian. And time and time again, you sadly are access to what was happening. I'm very keen on the North African provinces of the Ottoman Empire, comes from prisoner accounts. And they're being sort of paid by missionary societies to say how awful it was. But reading between the lines, you get that the real problem, there were so many converts. Yeah. And so you you went to the Corsair ports and, it, and instead of being redeemed, you said, oh, no, actually, this is a freer, more meritocratic world, uh, open to men of talent, not so mad and snobbish. To be a knight of St. John, you had to prove you had no blemish, i.e. you were noble, on eight quarterings of your family tree. <laughs> I mean, these, these are, are mad, racist, ethnic snobs. You know, running things. And the Ottoman Empire was sort of, was like a sort of dream world of Canada and America, open to, you know, come, bring your talent. Mm. 
Talking about the renegades, the Archbishop Lord actually writes a special service for the reconversion of a renegade, someone who has been converted to Islam, mm. then somehow makes his way back to England. And it's so common that there's actually a service written and uh, that's sent around the country to formally reconvert renegades to Christianity. Whoa, I love that. That's a brand new fact. I want to hear that. <laughs> that's Nabil Matar, who, who we must get on the series at some point. We must, we must. Nabil, Nabil would be fantastic. Now, look, we, we are... T- we, I mean, this is actually, I, can, I can't see him, but I think our producer has perhaps one hair left on his head because we have billed this about the panto. And it is turning into a panto. Oh, yes, it is. It is. And we've not even got to the most important event in the whole build-up to Lepanto, the Ottoman invasion of Cyprus and the siege of its capital, Nicosia. No, we have not. And so let's take a break there. And when we come back, we're going to get straight into that. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So the year is 1570. Selim II is the Ottoman Sultan, and he's planning to invade Cyprus. Just to give you a bit of context on this, this is just after the Pope has decided to excommunicate Elizabeth I of England, and there is a plot afoot to unseat her and put Mary Queen of Scots on the throne. So it's a really very busy year. Let's talk about the Ottoman side, though, and um, the fact that this is the most pivotal moment in the run-up to the Battle of Lepanto. It is. So, Barnaby, Selim plans this siege and attack well in advance, doesn't he? Yes. There's a theory that he was actually working on the plans on behalf of his father in the last year of Selim and the Magnificent's reign. And so not only did he want to have a conquest of his own, he might have felt he was fulfilling something he'd been working with his revered, magnificent father on at the end of his life. 
this was a big deal. I mean, they had to build up a fleet. They had to do. I mean, is it amphibious landings? What's the what's the I mean, what's the style of an invasion of a Mediterranean island in the in the sixteenth century? Well, just to remind you, those who can't picture Cyprus, it's not really part of the Aegean. It's really part of the Levant. From one of the mountains, you can see Syria at sunset, and there's a long, wonderful, wonderful spine on the north coast that looks at Turkey. There's a great big plateau in the middle and sort of rough limestone hills on the south. And there are three good ports there. There's Famagusta looking at Syria, at the Levant. Uh, there's Carinia looking at Turkey. And there's Limassol looking at the west towards Crete and the rest of the Aegean. And Cyprus has its own very particular mood. It's both tangibly Anatolian when you walk on the landscape and also part of, of Greece. And as we know, it was entirely a Byzantine Greek island felt with crusaders. This odd Lusignan dynasty ruled there for 150 years. So this is a French dynasty transplanted to to an island in the Aegean. To Cyprus, sold yeah. by that absolute villainous, sort of paranoid, murdering character called Richard the Lionheart, you know, um, passing <laughs> it on to the Lusignan for cash. They are a rather wonderful, become partly Hellenized, and almost at the end of their career have a sort of fusion Levantine state, which is rather beautiful when you come across monuments there. But they get squeezed by the Genoese and the Venetians. Eventually, the Venetians encourage the last Lusignan king to marry a, a Venetian lady, and then they have a coup and take over the island. Never loved. What date is that, uh, Barnaby? A, a, a rough sort of guess, 1480, 14, um, sort of 60. So they, they've been there for 100 years. Right. Okay. So, so, so this gives the the Venetians a quite um, tentative hold. Then, I mean, it's not it's not sort of steeped in history. The roots aren't deep. No. And and their their Caterina Corano is you know the widow is crowned queen of, of of Cyprus and then makes a formal abdication to the Venetian Republic. It's it's definitely a military coup squeezed out and and it's it's unattractive in the detail. The Venetians are rather sweet and become part of the Levantine world. They've actually in some complicated way, decided to pay tribute to the Mameluke emirs in Cairo, and it becomes sort of folded in to the Levantine world. And when Venice takes over, it's definitely to build a sort of fortress point, and they impose the Roman Catholic Church in a way that the Lusignans had let things almost slide together. I mean, the Orthodox and Catholic Church are separate apart, but you can see in the architecture how much they're leaning into each other. And the last really good Lusignan king has a choice of two Greek wives and his mistress is also Byzantine. You know, they, they they feel part of the mood. So the Venetian presence is entirely military when you're there. There's the beautiful Lusignan cathedrals built in Nicosia and in Famagusta. Which still stands today. Yeah, Still stands today, converted to mosques and, and, and survive in that way. And they have vague claims to be kings of Jerusalem. It's 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 a wonderful heritage at Lusignan moment. And whenever you, and I've explored the island very thoroughly, I wrote a guidebook as a young man there, know it quite well, love the, love the island. But Venice is always just military. And there's, there's something about getting to know the architecture. It's just steeped in power and walls and fortresses. And so the, the Ottomans set off from Istanbul with an enormous fleet that they've been building for three or four years in, what, 1570? Yes, they land in 1570, terribly well organised. And Nicosia is right inland. They've got to get their army inland. Their risings of, of the Greeks being feeling liberated by the Turks, being their old sort of serfdom under the Venetians is broken and the Turks give them freehold of their land, recognise, not only recognise the Orthodox Church, but end the Catholic presence on the island. So it's it's a form of liberation that's similar that's happening in Eastern Europe 
And the Ottomans are past masters at using any division. So whether they're Protestants or Catholic, Catholics or Orthodox, they're in there in the quick and manipulating those differences, freeing the Greeks and concentrating all of their firepower, as it were, purely on the Venetians. Initially, on the great walled city of Nicosia, impossible city to defend, right in the middle of the island. So Venetians can't supply it, can't use their navy. I mean, they should have declared it an open city and right from the start concentrated all the strength on Famagusta. Kyrenia, the other great fortress, is surrendered by a Venetian commander who was later accused of treachery and put in a prison and never gets out of that prison in Crete. So Famagusta is the great testing siege in the end. And those fortresses are still magnificent. I wandered around them. They are they, they're still awesome elements of military engineering. Counterscarps, glasses, barbicans, every technique designed to withstand a, a cannon bombard. And ultimately, it's a big success for the Ottomans. They capture this really without, without too much difficulty, dis- despite brave defence of, of Bragadino. It's a surrendered truce. They lose 50,000 men in the conquest of Nicosia and Famagusta. So those are big casualties. And they find it quite difficult to, difficult to persuade any of the soldiers to stay as Turkish settlers on the island. So there, there is a high cost in blood of the fall of Cyprus, but there's inevitability about it. And when you look at the map of the Levant, you see how neatly Cyprus will fit into the Ottoman provinces in Levant, Middle East. So the soldiers march out. They're allowed to take their horses with them. They're allowed to take their weapons and their flags. Initially, uh, the Venetians say, we want the same wonderful truce of dignity that Solomon the Magnificent offered to the Knights of St. John from the uh, Siege of Rhodes, the Second Siege of Rhodes, which again, fascinating, was a, a powerful Ottoman siege, but it was a negotiated surrender. Ottomans had this finesse of, you know, of not pushing things to the final sack and destruction and would, in the process, would take over an inhabitable fortress. And that is a blisteringly expensive siege. The Turks in Cyprus still talk about 50,000 martyrs, and everybody knows what that means. It's the 50,000 Turks who died trying to take Famagusta and Nicosia in that campaign. It was very, very bloodthirsty. The Venetians sort of knew that they were never going to win against the Ottoman Empire, but they always had to show that they were strong and tough and resolute. And they really were showing they could fight but really in the end, knowing that the end, they're going to have to make a peace with the Ottoman Empire because they need the Levant trade. The Levant trade is their absolute lifeblood. It's, it's the arteries, the blood, the oxygen, everything that keeps the Venetian Empire going. And these empires are rather glorious sideshows, but they do a fantastic, extraordinary job. And right at the end, there's a truce and they agree to go. And there's a muddle because the Venetians had intercepted the Hajj caravan of pilgrims on their way to Mecca and the, um, the Ottoman commander, Lala Mustafa, says, you know, now we must swap prisoners. And what about uh, the Hajj caravan? And the Venetians laugh and they said, oh, they were slaughtered. And the Ottomans lose their temper and break their truce and execute this callous Venetian commander in his red silk pyjamas. Wait a minute. You can't throw away that detail that cheaply. <laughs> God, yeah, First quick, of all... We know, how did they kill him, Barnaby? How did they kill him? <laughs> Does he not know how we operate? First... Go on, full Game of Thrones detail. First of all, they bury him in the ground when he's, he's quite annoying at the beginning and not respectful and cut off his ears. And then they dig him up and say, right now you can leave. And then he's rude again. And then what do they do, Barnaby? You cannot just say, they just killed him. What did they do, Barnaby? They tie him against one of the classical columns and uh, they skin him starting from the scalp 
They flay him alive. For halfway through the operation, like Marcias, and they stuff his skin with straw and they hoist it up on the, on the height of the um, Ottoman galley and sail it past as a great sort of red balloon. But of the Venetian who had killed innocent pilgrims on the way to Mecca. That is one way of understanding. We know that Famagusta fell before Lepanto, so it's not like revenge for Lepanto. It's right. a normal bit of conquest. And the, the Ottomans wanted to take the island, give the Sultan his victory, you know, then get back to business with the Venetians. So it's quite okay. difficult to understand about this terror campaign because we know in earliest campaigns, the Ottomans were really respected for their word. They would, you know, the Knights of St. John from Rhodes were allowed to go in peace. Quite often when you were defeated, Serbian and Bosnian um, nobles were given opportunity to convert and would then join the Ottoman Empire's quite high-ranking ministers. One of the great ways the Ottoman Empire expanded was by being decent victors. So it's not normal, this. Right, so keep keep your word, yeah. Yeah, it, it's very, very highly publicised. And what did Bragadin say? This, what, what, what was it that really made them see red? According to my account, he, he, he was scornful about the request of Lala Mustafa about the fate of the Hajj pilgrims who'd been intercepted by the Venetian fleet as if they didn't count and had been killed. Was I, was I right in thinking there was, a, there was a beloved nurse from the harem who had been killed? There was, there was something very personal about this. That might well be the detail we're looking for. There was a, a, a real need, but without you know, becoming an apologist for the Turks, it's not their normal conduct to flay um, a Venetian senator. Okay, William, we find ourselves now in the summer of 1571. The Ottomans have taken Cyprus from the Venetians. They have, I'm sorry to repeat this again and again, flayed their leader, Marco Brigadin. The stage is now set for one of the greatest naval battles in all history. It is, and it's Ottomans versus the Holy League, the Battle of Lepanto. It's, I mean, it's such a good story, this. Uh, so, look, it's so important and actually so amazing. We want to tell this in great detail. So, William, how are we going to do this properly? Well, and you know, this week we're going to have to treat listeners to a second episode. We're going to get Barnaby back and we're going to go through the whole naval battle in a separate episode that will be coming out on Thursday. So please do join us again on Thursday for that. But for now, this is goodbye from me, Anita Arnand. And goodbye from me, William Durimple.